The talk this evening is on attentiveness, insight, and emptiness. And I would like, if possible, to look at the relationship that might exist between these three, between attention, insight, and emptiness. And in doing so, also have something of an overview of how what we've been doing so far in the retreat ties into all of this. Developing attentiveness is actually an art. It's an art that certainly requires something more than just practice or time. It's clear that developing this art of attentiveness requires a certain spirit certain attitude, a certain relationship. Deepening in attentiveness requires sensitivity. It requires a great deal of skillfulness. It also requires a real willingness to learn, an actual openness to learning from what we experience. It's an art, too, that actually also asks of us a great deal of, of love, of patience and of dedication. And when you look at the variety of spiritual traditions and paths that exist, it's very difficult to find any tradition or any path that doesn't in some way ask of a person that they pay attention. No matter how varied the paths are, there is this common element that people traveling on it, are actually asked to pay attention. The reasons, I think, for this are fairly obvious. When we are not, atten not attentive, as you may have experienced in the rare moment in this retreat, you experience that you are simply not present, you're not connected. And we're not, when we're not present and not connected, what we experience both outwardly and inwardly is a certain superficiality in our perceptions, in the way in that we see, the way that we hear, the way that we feel. And attentiveness is actually intended, then, to bring about greater depth. It's intended to bring about a greater connectedness, a oneness of mind and heart with the moment that we're experiencing. And in that, to develop an openness to learning. So that really that all our sense connections are deepened. Now, of course, it does seem an extraordinarily simple uh, activity to give our wholehearted attention to something. What we do encounter very quickly that is probably one of the most challenging activities that we ever engage in. It also seems that a retreat or this opportunity to give wholehearted attention, it's really quite a gift in our lives to come into a situation where you are invited to do nothing but to give wholehearted attention to oneself, to the present moment, to caring for oneself, 
to connecting with this moment that we're in. And because of that, many people do find themselves looking forward with a great deal of anticipation towards retreats. You know, and you've got terrific memories, particularly of the last few hours of your last retreat. <laughs> and you can't wait to get here, you know, and often feel indeed so fortunate until you sit down on a cushion and find that you can't wait to get off. <laughs> and we see that often what the difficulty is, of course, is our remarkable ability to produce stories and fantasies and memories that we get so preoccupied with. And there are many times, no doubt, that you wonder why it is difficult to pay attention if we featured, you know, very new movies in here every evening or on a regular basis during the day. Probably you might not have that much trouble paying attention. And yet we choose this simplicity, the simplicity of the silence. We don't use a lot of visual aids in talks. We don't provide much entertainment, I don't think. <clears throat> when we choose this simplicity to give us the opportunity to meet this challenge, to really explore our own ambivalence about being present. Why do we feel ambivalent about being present? Why do we feel ambivalent about just giving wholehearted attention to ourselves, to the present moment? The reasons are many. One reason that it's difficult, of course, is that this moment, just as it is, really doesn't seem often to offer us a great deal of gratification. And we should never underestimate either the need or the greed of I to be endlessly stimulated, pleased, flattered, and busy. The breath in this moment doesn't really seem to offer us very much of that. You know, it's hard to get that excited about the breath. One breath is really just not that different from another breath often. And no matter how busy we get with the breath, you know, trying to make it deep or make it shallow or make it imperceptible or make it come in one nostril and go out another nostril or feel it in our feet, you know, no matter how busy we get with the breath, there's a limit actually to how long, to how long we're actually going to be entertained by it. Another reason why it is difficult is that many of the props that I, the sense of self, feeds upon are simply taken away in this environment. And we are left with ourselves, with in many ways a really profound kind of aloneness, which is often experienced as deprivation. Because of that feeling of deprivation, that something has been taken away, or really many things have been taken away, because we are very deeply at times threatened by what emptiness might mean. That is why we experience the dragons of the hindrances, because they distance us from experiencing that emptiness very deeply. And the hindrances also give us something to do. 
They give us projects, even missions. They actually provide us with something to do. And as I mentioned in one of the groups, you know, sometimes people feel the hindrances are just there in the beginning of a retreat and they pass away. But often the hindrances are there in the beginning of a retreat because we feel out of control, not in control of our environment. Somebody tells us what to do all the time, the bell that goes. And after a few days, what happens is not so much that we've had some wonderful leap in our meditation to great depth, but actually after a few days, we just feel more in control again. You know, we feel that we, you know, nobody's going to miss us if we don't turn up. We know our way around the building. We, you know, we haven't found anybody's mugged us in the hallways. You know, we feel relatively in control again. However, that sense of control is threatened on every level here. We think we have to control the breath. But no matter how much we fool around with the breath, it becomes clear to us after a while that the breath doesn't actually need us. <laughs> it doesn't actually require us in any way. And there's different levels in our thoughts, our feelings, our body, that so much of that control is threatened. We tell ourselves you know, how happy we should be to be here. And we're dreaming about leaving. We tell our minds to be still, you know, please be quiet, mind, you know, I just just like to pay attention here. And our minds chatter. We tell ourselves to let go of something and we find instead that we're really holding on. Really, there's not a great deal of inner obedience. And this illusion of control is one of the first insights that comes to us on a retreat how little control there actually is, and how much we rely on what little there seems to be. <laughs> and when we can't, don't seem to have too much, how we will manufacture more. For some people, paying attention is difficult because they don't feel they're worth paying attention to. They may not have received or not been used to receiving a great deal of attention in their lives or being honored or respected and don't actually feel so capable of offering that kind of sensitive attentiveness, that wholehearted attentiveness to themselves. And lastly, the reason that you probably know all of this, I'm sure, The reason that attention is difficult at times because we are meeting the mind that is so strongly entrenched in its habits of distractedness, of wandering, of dwelling, of preoccupation. This is why this art of developing attentiveness does require more than practice why it does require more than, than time, why it only develops really when we learn to call forth from within ourselves qualities of patience and dedication and qualities of compassion and generosity. As we persevere in developing attention, 
it's very important to remind ourselves that we do not do this in order to get rid of all of these things that we struggle with. That we do not develop attention in order to overcome or to transcend this variety of things that we so easily label as being hindrances. That we don't develop attention so that we can arrive at some separate and lofty destination or plane of existence where we're not going to be bothered or disturbed by scatteredness or control or feelings of unworthiness. To enter this path or to try and develop attentiveness with that kind of motivation leads to a kind of striving and contempt for ourselves, for our own being, which will actually lead us not to attentiveness, but it will lead us to becoming an uptight, a rigid, and a righteous yogi. And if that's your aim in life, then I suggest just continue with overcoming, because it's what happens. The mind becomes tight. We develop and persevere with attentiveness so that we learn how to meet these challenges in our own being and in our lives in the spirit of compassion and generosity. So that we actually learn to meet these challenges with compassion and generosity. When we do that, when we do finally understand that, what happens is not only does the struggle and the scatteredness and the lack of clarity begin to dissolve, but what is more important is that simultaneously there is a deepening and a strengthening in those very qualities of compassion and generosity. There's a deepening and strengthening of those qualities of patience, of openness, of a willingness to learn. There's a deepening in dedication and steadfastness and sensitivity. And these, this deepening, this ripening of consciousness is far more significant, far, far more significant than how many breaths in a row we might follow, or how perfect a breather we may be becoming. This practice is not really directed so much to a quantitative expansion of attentiveness, so that we have more breaths necessarily and more precision. The practice is equally very deeply concerned with a qualitative transformation in consciousness. And that is so important for us to remember, especially in those moments when we're judging ourselves because we've forgotten the breath. I mean, really, in the vast scheme of our lives, in the vision of the cosmos, does it matter? Does it really matter? Is it not more significant 
that we are really paying attention and ripening the consciousness, that there's a real transformation in the consciousness that is not concerned with whether one breath immediately follows another, but that is very, very concerned with how we meet all of these struggles and challenges. When that transformation of consciousness begins, we find actually that we have a real ease of attentiveness, that we find it's not difficult to pay attention, that we find we are with the breath, and that all of the struggles were really not so necessary. A happy mind is a prerequisite to samadhi. And I think that's a fairly important thing to remember. A happy mind, contentment, is a prerequisite to samadhi, to real one-pointedness and depth. When we begin in the practice, we choose an object that we are going to attend to. And as we've been been developing the practice here, the object that we've chosen has been the breath. That has been our anchor object. And as we pay attention to the breath, we are equally giving attention to whatever else, what other objects our attention is drawn to, to sounds, to thoughts, to body sensations, and to feelings. But it is clear in the beginning of this practice that it is really very object-centered. It is concerned with objects. It is paying attention to objects, to one object at a time, one moment after another. It's not easy to develop because we see how much busyness there is at many times in our minds. And when we begin, we often don't feel that we have a great deal of clarity about the objects that we are attending to. We pay attention to the breath, but often there feels a big distance between ourselves and the breath. Or we pay attention to thoughts, or try to, and we're aware that we're thinking, but we're not always so aware of what we're thinking. We're aware that there's mental states. We've heard this wonderful label, mental states. And we're aware that we have mental states, but they feel at times very, very vague to us. The objects are used in meditation for a particular reason. The objects are used to deepen our connection with them, to lessen that distance, so there's greater immediacy in our seeing and perceiving, so that there's great closeness between our attention and the object, which eventually will transform into oneness that the attention is simply one with the object, and there's really not a great feeling of distance at all. We don't choose a particular object because one object's more important than another in any way. But because that direct, direct connectedness, because that communion is very, very significant. As we continue to develop the attentiveness. There are certain changes that do take place inevitably, sometimes slowly and sometimes quickly, 
but they will change, take place. One is that the objects become clearer to us. And the objects become clearer to us because the mind is clearer. And often it also does appear that the objects become more calm. We don't feel that they're so kind of shattering or they don't seem to carry such charge. There is a calming down of the objects. There's less of a feeling of being pushed and pulled by thoughts or sensations or being bossed around by them or overwhelmed. The objects have that sense of becoming calmer because the mind is also becoming calmer. And as the mind becomes calmer, so does the body. You feel a greater sense of calmness, of ease within your body. Now, this change of calming down, of feeling closer, of feeling clearer, of more connection, this is the organic development of attentiveness. It's the organic development of this art. As those changes do begin to take place, we also experience arising within our consciousness qualities of ease, a greater balance, a greater spaciousness, a greater stability. Now, when I say that this is the organic development of attentiveness, it is also not to use this, please, as some yardstick by which to measure yourself. It is important to remember that there is no standard map in meditation, that we are unique, our exploration of this journey is unique, and there can really be a number of underlying reasons why we continue with struggling. And certainly one of those reasons is, is if, if we bring into a retreat some very unresolved life issues, we will find ourselves pulled towards them or pulled towards ripples and a lack of steadiness much more. It doesn't mean that you're not going to develop attentiveness but it will be in a slightly different way. It is also important to remember that this development of attentiveness does not necessarily take place in a very smooth and a very progressive and a very linear and a very predictable way. It doesn't. For most people, there will certainly be valleys and a few peaks, but it will develop. The changes will become more lasting, and more deep within ourselves. Now, when this sense of ease, and when this calmness and tranquility, the serenity begins to arise, we often, of course, feel very happy about it. You know, in, and of course, as often with it, a little bit of grasping, it says, I would certainly like this to stay. You know, and we often treasure it very highly. What is, I feel, very important to remember is that this is not the time to retire. <laughs> the quiet mind is the happy mind. 
If all we wanted was a quiet mind, we could make a kind of bulk order of Valium mm -hmm. and spend quite a few days here together quite happily. <laughs> the quiet mind is, of course, a very attractive mind. It looks good. It's a nice thing for show and tell, you know, I've got this nice quiet mind. But it is not an end in itself. We should not assume that the object of meditation is to become better and better at perceiving objects. And we should not assume that the object of meditation is to become more and more and yet more precise in our seeing of objects. Neither should we assume that there is a direct link between samadhi and insight, between calmness and insight, between quietness and understanding. It is, of course, very natural and very understandable to find ourselves longing for a quiet mind when we're in the midst of chaos. But I would say, I would suggest very strongly, don't be satisfied with a quiet mind. Don't be satisfied with just calmness. Don't feel that you have arrived when the mind becomes calm. And nor assume that there is a link, a definite link between the samadhi and, and insight. The point of calmness, as I mentioned, is not to get better and better at perceiving objects. Calmness is a change in consciousness which lends itself, lends itself, I use that word very precisely, it lends itself to a deepening in insight. But the insight is not an automatic product of the quiet mind. It is possibly true to say that insight comes more easily to a mind where there is calmness and spaciousness. But that's not in any way to say that the chaotic mind is excluded from insight. There are plenty of people with chaotic minds who have plenty of insight. The difference, possibly, is that because the quality of the chaotic mind is more superficial, which it is, I think we would probably agree, the quality of presence and connectedness of the chaotic mind is more superficial. And so when there is insight in the midst of chaos, and we have many insights in our lives outside of retreats, but when insight takes place amidst a mind which is very scattered and chaotic, it often only makes a very superficial impression. We don't even aware that we had an insight. Or if we are aware that that insight or that understanding which we have come to, it doesn't necessarily lead to letting go or transformation, nor does it necessarily lead to a transformation in consciousness. And this is the difference. When there is calmness and presence and clear connectedness, insight makes a deeper impact. Now we talk a lot about insight and wisdom 
and understanding. Words we use all the time. I think that if we were very honest with ourselves, we would actually see that insight is really not that hard. Insight is the easiest part of this path. Insight is really not some mystical, esoteric, kind of super mundane experience that's very difficult to reach. Insight is actually very easy. It's not difficult at all. If you were asked to sit down for an hour and reflect upon your lives and just write it down, what causes limitation, what causes suffering, what causes pain, what causes separation, you know, a short quiz. (laughs) It would probably find that it really would be very easy for you to write the whole story. You know, you would write down what causes the ups and downs in your lives, what the source of of confusion is, what dwelling does to you. You would be able to write down very clearly the strong patterns and tendencies that influence you in your life that lead to conflict. We'd be able to see the causes of pain and separation. You know, we could give little lists, you know, and subtitles. We would see what holding does to us and resistance. We would see very clearly the armor and the defenses that we carry. Most of us don't have that many secrets from ourselves. We know. We know this very well. We would see easily the ways in which our past influences the present and the effect of subscribing to our opinions and our beliefs about who I am. These are no secrets. We know these things. We know our stories well. We wouldn't need an hour. And it is also clear that this knowing and this intellectual understanding, it's often very helpful to us in our lives. It often is very helpful. I'm not denying that in any way. But it's also, I think, clear to us that this knowing or this more conceptual understanding It doesn't always lead to transformation or to letting go, and often it doesn't, and that is very frustrating. That is something that is extraordinarily frustrating in our lives, that we know what we're doing, Mm -hmm. and we don't know how to stop doing it. Insight that is spoken about in meditation is a way of deeply seeing, in which letting go is a part of that seeing. It's not separate from the seeing. There's no separation. There is seeing and letting go. That is what insight is. There is understanding and transformation, that they are directly linked together. Now, the calmness that we develop helps with this deepening in our seeing. It helps the insight to make a profound, that the insight makes a profound impression upon the consciousness, deep enough that it is married to letting go, and that understanding is married to transformation. The calmness helps, but it is not enough. It is not enough in itself. True samadhi 
is calmness and clear comprehension together. It's not just calmness, it is calmness and clear comprehension, which is more than just paying attention to an object. It means that there is a direct and a clear connection with whatever we are attending to, a connection in which there's no dwelling, no holding, and no resistance. That is what clear comprehension is. Where we are attending and connected with what we are attending to, thoughts, feelings, or whatever, in a way in which there's no projections, no images, no likes, and no dislikes. So a thought is a thought, a feeling is a feeling, a sensation is a sensation. And they are experienced as such. They are felt and experienced as such within our own being. We're aware of the beginning, their ending, the changes they go through. And we are aware of our relationship to what we are attending to. A clear and conscious relationship where there isn't any dwelling or resistance. We're aware of the object, but also the impression that is made upon consciousness through the object. Now, as the attention develops, as I mentioned, there comes about, because there's not this resistance or holding, a greater harmony, unconditional harmony with whatever object we are attending to that is free for preferences, it's free from, free from judgments, it's free from prejudice. And so there is a calm and a conscious relationship, a wholehearted sense of being present. Now because there is that freedom from prejudice, the mind is at ease with whatever object arises. There's just a sense of ease with it. It's not something to struggle with. It's not something to do something with. The attention is simply at ease with it because of the freedom from prejudice, because there's neither holding nor expecting nothing, anything. And when our connection is not carrying any burden of expectations, then of course our attention is one which is light, which is joyous even, which is happy, which is in harmony, because of the clarity of that connection. The thoughts and the mental states and the feelings very often dissolve. They simply find no foothold. Because of the calmness and no holding, no for and against, the objects as they arise really seem to make very little impression upon consciousness. There's clear comprehension and yet that sense of seeing and attentiveness and serenity really remains something undisturbed. Now, this is again not something to rest upon. Again, it's not something to feel, oh well, I've arrived, you know? Now, now I happily kind of sit back and let it all happen. This is not something to rest upon. It is true that if you just keep turning up here, sitting and walking, you just show up, sit yourself down on a cushion, your practice will undergo some very organic changes. 
But I would also say that because of the very subtle layers of holding and grasping, there are many times when our practice actually needs something of a nudge. And I would feel no reluctance at all about encouraging those nudges. It is important to see that liberating insight is not just giving attention to objects, it is also giving attention to the subject, the sense of I, the sense of self. Actually, giving attention to objects in meditation is a way of actually just becoming clearer about the subject. Because the objects that arise in meditation are actually not not the problem, if you want to use that word. Actually not the issue. Hmm? Which is why it's, it's, it's kind of silly to play, you know, to get really involved with remodeling your objects, because <laughs> it's not actually the issue. It is very important to see that it is the meditator who develops mindfulness. That's what we do here in developing attention. We develop the meditator. Now, the meditator is interesting, most interesting. The meditator, who is it? Same all one. The meditator is no other than the I in a more refined form. This seems a little confusing because we thought we were here to see the end of I and here we are actually developing it. Now there's a certain skillfulness in developing the meditator, but there's no freedom in it. And I think we need to be fairly honest about that. The meditator is not going to be free. The essence of the spiritual life, the essence of insight, is really to bring about the end of separation, the end of ignorance, the end of duality. And it is the I, no matter what form it is in, that creates a world of objects and that creates a world of separation. Now, we should not immediately conclude that our next mission is to annihilate the I. It is not at all, in any way, an attempt to annihilate the I. But liberating insight is really to see the, the emptiness, the emptiness of separation, the emptiness of substantiality, which includes seeing through the meditator. We cannot overlook the fact that the meditator, or the I in the role of the meditator, gains an enormous amount of security and control and identity in that role. It's actually very happy there. After a while, once it makes the adjustment, the I is actually very happy in the role of the meditator, sometimes even delighted in attentiveness. You know, because the meditator sees it has a lot of power. You know, it can place its attention on one object and dissolve it. And then another object and dissolve it. And then another object and dissolve that too. But this is great stuff for the meditator. 
You know, this is like the ultimate control. <laughs> it is the meditator who's so interested in signposts of development and failure, of progress and regression. It is the meditator who feels so gleeful as it aims its laser beam of attention upon one object after another, like a video game, and wipes them out. It is the meditator who is so content in this. But it can be so busy, and I make this quite clear, the meditator can be so busy using that laser beam of its attention that it misses the point entirely. The eye that is so happy or delighted in its power and its capacity for developing meditation, it's not really, in essence, any different than the eye that accumulates all the impressions and identifications in the world. In essence, it is not, although it has a much more skillful development and there's a wholesome purpose in that development, and I don't want to overlook that in any way. I've been encouraging you for five days to develop the meditator. And I'm not trying to fool you. There is really a reason for that, but we need to take it just one step more. That the eye that is happy in the role of the meditator is in essence not different than the eye that judges and creates division that is the center of a world of object, of creating a world of objects which are all separate and apart from each other. But the eye can be very happy in that role and very reluctant to let go of that role and that control. But it's very important to see that there's really no freedom in a world of separation. There's no freedom living in a world of objects Sometimes we, we will, ex- actually, we will experience in the development of the meditator more detachment, more calm, and more insight. But we can still be missing the point about the profound understanding of emptiness. And the eye that develops in meditation is the same eye that will pack its bags and has more potential to accumulate yet more conflicts in the world. So then the big question for all of us, of course, is how do we come to this insight? How do we come to really liberating insight? How do we come to an understanding, a deep understanding of emptiness? And sometimes, you know, the answer that we come up with is, well, I have to do more. You know, I have to be more clear. I have to be more precise. I have to make more effort. And sometimes they're very reluctant to acknowledge the limitations of doing because that is to acknowledge the limitations of I. But those limitations are very real. And sometimes even trying not to do becomes just another form of doing. As you might have experienced, you know, trying to practice choiceless awareness kind of a contradiction in terms, isn't it? The dance of consciousness needs to be seen clearly. That the object arises 
with the subject. The subject arises with the object. We think, I think, I want, I hear. As the object passes away, so does the subject. In that form, I'm no longer the thinker or the hearer or the desirer. As that object passes away and the subject passes away in one form, it's replaced by another object with which another subject and another form arises. I become something else. The object molds and flavors the subject just as the eye molds and flavors the object that arises. This is the dance of consciousness that there is that interdependence between object and subject. You never experience just I. Try and sit down and experience just I. You don't experience just I. You experience I in relationship to object. I am, I have, I think, I want, I don't want. Always in relationship to object. You do not experience I alone. Nowhere in that dance do you find any substantiality. The link between those partners, the link between the partners in that dance of subject and object, the link is grasping. The link is identification, which takes the form of being for and against, of dwelling or resistance. The link is clinging. To hold on to any impression is to create a world of objects and our experience of it. And it is insubstantial. It is transparent. All division, all separation is transparent. It is insubstantial. Everything that we do in meditation is to loosen the grip of holding, to lessen the impact of grasping, the calmness we develop, the attentiveness we develop, the spaciousness we develop. It is to loosen the hold of grasping, to loosen the hold of identification. The Buddha once said that the foolish pursue contact, whereas the wise seek to understand it. Contact is the arising of the subject and the object together, when the object makes an impression upon consciousness. And there is the arising of the subject with it. That is contact. The Buddha said that the foolish pursue contact, because that is where I finds its home. Whereas the wise seek to understand it, to understand that dance, to understand the way the consciousness is molded, just to see it, to not subscribe to it, to not subscribe to holding, the world of separation disappears. To not hold on to the subject, the world of objects disappears. To not hold on to the object, the subject also disappears. It just dissolves. And there is just seeing. There is the radiance of awareness. It is not something we've gained. 
is not anything that's new to us. It's not caused by attention. But when there is no grasping, there is just the radiance, the natural radiance of awareness. It is seen from the heart. And the radiance in that, ra that radiance of awareness is a quality of grace and a quality of understanding and insight, which ends separation, which ends ignorance. It's not nothingness. Instead, in that understanding, there emerges a vision of oneness, a vision of reality, a vision of truth, which is truly awakening. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings live with awareness. We have just a couple of minutes together, please. This talk was given by Christina Feldman at Insight Meditation Society on July 25, 1991. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.